Join me, if you would, in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 5. As we take up this section of Scripture this morning, really continuing on the things that we've been looking at, 1 Samuel, chapter 5, as you turn there, we're going to look at chapter 5 and then a few verses also out of chapter 6. So do listen as I read God's Word here, and then we will begin to dig in. 1 Samuel chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And the Philistines took the ark of God and they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified them and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, Uh, For his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all of the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And and they they said this, uh, Let it be brought to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there, But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was then against that city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. And so they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought uh, around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. And so they sent and they gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and they sent away the ark of God and said, let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city and the hand of God was heavy there. The men who did, did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Let's pray. Lord God, as we take a few moments here, to turn our attention to your word. It is our prayer once again that God you will take your word which is real and living and active and powerful and make it fresh and vivid to us today. God we acknowledge with with absolute confidence that all of these things are written down for our warning, our instruction and our encouragement on whom the end of the ages have fallen. And so we pray that you would take these things that in your perfect wisdom you had recorded so that we would consider them even in these days. And you would, God, stir our heart 
with a sense of recognition and a sense of amazement at who you are, a great, all-powerful, and unchangeable God. Lord, deepen our sense of amazement and worship towards you. Uh, reveal to us more and more clearly uh, the great limitations of sinful man. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the previous chapter to this one, there had been that battle between the Philistines and the children of Israel. And as they lost the first battle, they figured the solution was to get the Ark of the Covenant brought out. And once we get that Ark out, somehow then we're going to win the battle. Thinking they could compel God to work for them instead of being a people who committed themselves to work for God. They thought they could manipulate him and use him and force his hand. And they found out that does not work. And there was a tremendous defeat and, and the two sons of Eli, those wicked sons, were killed and the Ark of the Covenant was captured. Now, to, to get this scene very clearly, in these ancient religious environments, where for the most part, country after country has different gods and distinct gods and idols that they worship. They would often go into battles with the thought, the stronger God will prevail. Even more so, among some of these gods, you might even have an ebb and flow. Our, our God's a lot stronger in the spring than he is in the winter. And, and, and such confusing notions like that could stir up because these were no gods. And, and so as men imagined them, or, or they might invoke distinct and different deities to apply to particular seasons or regions. And so it, it, it's, it, it can get confusing. I mean, uh, God has brought us uh, uh, at times to minister in India where you've got a multitude of gods and you can, uh, where the, they're innumerable and their different personalities and their different influences are, are not completely known and there's no cap and there's no limit on it. But in this idea, there is somehow this sense wrongly that the God of Israel who we know to be the true and only God, that he lost. Does he lose? He does not. Not at all. But what had happened is, God was handing them over. God was judging Israel for their present state of wickedness. They had gone away from his word. They were not walking according to his rules and statutes. Everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. Even the function of the tabernacle and the processes of the, the uh, sacrifices were not being faithfully and carefully followed. And, and so the battle was, was won by the Philistines. They captured the Ark of the Covenant and they took it back. And as they took it back, we see the first thing that I want us to consider this morning is the Ark in Ashdod. They take this Ark to one of their leading cities. They had five cities there. And they took this ark back to Ashdod. Now, this, this god that some people may pronounce Dagon or, or, or Dagon, it doesn't matter what you want to call his name. And, and, and 
my grandfather used to use doggone in a very different sense than a reference to this dog in a, just a very simple phrase. You know, that doggone guy. And, and it, it was no reference to this God in any way. But they thought this God was powerful. They thought this God had defeated the God of Israel. Now this was, a, this was a, a, a God in their minds, not truly a God, but their idol was fashioned in a way that it was part fish and part man. Now maybe that doesn't inspire us, but it clearly did inspire them. It had the tail of, uh, a tail of a fish and, and, and somewhat of a body, but it had the head of a man and the arms and hands of a man. There are inscriptions that they found of this particular um, Dagon or Dagon and, and him holding his hands in certain ways uh, to, to, to bless the people and to show his power. And so all of this is there. And they bring the Ark of the Covenant and they take it and they take it into the house that is dedicated to this idol, to this false god. And they set it, this Ark, beside the idol. Okay, the terminology of that is here is the idol and they set the ark beside the idol. In some sense, you put something at the right hand and left hand, they bear some measure of significance. They're recognizing this is representative of a deity, but it's a secondary deity. It's, it's a subservient deity. He's the one who lost. And, and, and that's the, the sense of it. Uh, whereas... For us, that's even a strange idea because we come from such a monotheistic, uh, a single God mindset that, that we don't understand. We, this is the God of Israel. Why would they take him into their temple? Well, the people of those ancient days, they wouldn't change their gods, which means abandon them, but they would surely add to them. This one? We'll bring him on board. He may be good at these kinds of things, harvests. He might specialize in harvests for us, whereas this one deals with battles for us. And this one might bring uh, rain when there's droughts. And, and you know, all kinds of, of ideas come up. And they bring this ark in, and they, and they set this ark in the house of their God. And we, we, we having just read the story, it, it's quite picturesque and quite humbling what God does. Because what, they set it up in there and, 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 and probably perform their usual evening rituals and then abandon the place for the evening. And when they come back the next day, things are not as they left them. When they come back in, it is no longer side by side, but now this idol which we would imagine, based on the, the historic context of these things, is probably not a figurine, okay? It's probably something man-sized or oftentimes larger than man-sized, so that when people come in, it's like, wow, you know, they get a sense of its, its power. But it's no longer standing to, to greet them and bless them as they enter the room. But now this idol, it, it's not simply fallen, but it's turned in such a way that it is prostrate, bowed face down before the Ark of the Covenant. 
So the, it's, it's a confusing picture, isn't it? Because they've put it in there, the de, that which represents the defeated God in the presence of the victor sitting at the side. And yet now this God is facing it and in a position of humiliation or even homage and worship. Now, it wasn't worshiping God. How do I know that? Because it's nothing. It's just a carved piece of stone. It wasn't doing anything. But nonetheless, there, there would have been some confusion and consternation among the people who entered that morning because how did that happen? What mischief is afoot? Because somebody got in here and moved it. I mean, we can probably imagine the various accusations. Did you lock up? Did you lock the door? Uh, where was the guard? What happened? Who was in here? Who was here first today? And all the, and no solution is forthcoming. Everything was done as usual. And anyways, who would do this? But they had the solution. Pick it up. So they take, it's, it tells us there in, in the passage, it says he'd fallen face down on the ground before the ark. So they took the God and put him back in his place. I'm just going to say that. That phrase itself should be very telling. The people took the God and put him back in his place. Okay, what kind of God is this? People have to pick him up when he's fallen. <laughs> I mean, what a wonderful lesson God is showing to them. And, and yet still, confusion, uncertainty, what has caused this, probably still some doubt in their mind as to some vandal may have snuck in. They fix it back in its place and go on about their business. They come back, it says again, the next day. So they come back in, and it's the very next day, and we go from bringing the ark into the house of God to now where uh, there is homage from the supposed God of that house. And now we move from that to see the head and hands of their God. Because listen to what happens as they come in the next day. It says, verse 4, And when they rose... Early the next morning, behold, I'm going to say Dagon so you don't get confused by the vernacular. Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark. So it was a repeat, but the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. All right. The translation here says cut off. The term there represents severed. It's not the word that you would use for it broke off when it fell. It's not that word. These are, these are those, they've been severed. They've been intentionally removed. And not only that, they're not just scattered all over the place. Okay, based on the way that this this idol was fashioned were it to fall you would have one hand maybe moving one direction one hand being blocked by the torso from moving forward but the head and all the hands are removed over to the threshold 
Do you want to know how far it is from where he was placed to the threshold? So do I. But I can't know that because the scriptures don't tell us. But these two things, these, the head and the hands were away, separate, and specifically placed in that threshold. Now what's important is when you're looking at the head, the head often in these historic times, and even in a sense when we think of, of the church and the body of Christ, the head represents its authority. The hands often represented its power. And so you have this God and its symbol of authority sheared off, its symbols of power cut off and put at the doorway so that when the people come to enter, sitting at their feet are those symbols of power and authority and they look inside and the remaining torso is bowing once again, laid down, facing towards the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now this, you know, at this point, their minds should be spinning. What is happening? This doesn't make any sense. Who would do something like this? And they ought to begin to infer some reasonable conclusions. Maybe the God of Israel is, at the very least, stronger, more powerful than our God. We had thought ours was the victory, ours was the power, ours was the supreme authority, and yet from the moment we brought this one here, which isn't even an idol, it's just a box. It's from the moment that we've brought it here, ours has been falling down, and now ours is divested, indeed dismembered, of its power and authority. And that's not the end of it, because what's interesting is we move from just seeing the ark in Ashdod really in the house of their God, to look at the second part. Uh, it, it's interesting the way it transitions here in verse 8, because we've just seen the hands of this idol are what? Cut off and put in the doorway. And then the phrase for what begins to break out in the city and in its territories begins like this in verse eight. And the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. Wait, there's no hand on that ark, at least no hand of God. The hands of their God cut off and on the threshold. The hand of God, heavy on the people. Not seen, not carved, but heavy on the people. So one God demonstrated as powerless. The God manifesting himself as powerful. In a painful manner here, if you look at it. Because look what begins to happen. And the, and the first thing that we really see breaking out as a sub-point under uh, what I would call the second point is the hand hard and heavy. So we had the ark in Ashdod, and we have the hand hard and heavy. And the first thought is this, of mice and malignancy. Right? Because now, we didn't really, until we get to chapter 6, we don't get the full extent of what happened. 
but we should go ahead and take a peek down in chapter 6 when they're beginning to send the ark back they want to send it with tokens that represent the judgment that God brought against them and in their peculiar sense of fixing the problem they decide we're going to send representations of the affliction that we've received and so among those things we're going to fashion golden mice because we see in chapter 6 verse 4 and 5 it says this um, they said what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him that is the God of Israel and they said they answered five golden tumors and five golden mice according to the number of the lords of the Philistines five lords of the Philistines for the same plague that was on all of you and your lords verse 5 so you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravaged the land okay so we didn't really get much detail on the mice in chapter 5 we get it as we move on further uh, but we did get the tumors the hemorrhages that as it comes down to some of the subsequent cities uh, uh, it, it gets uh, horrible but God afflicts them so not only is is their God shown to have no authority and no power then suddenly these people who, who in their pride and sense of, uh, of boastful confidence think they defeated the God of Israel, they begin to be afflicted by tumors and then their, their fields being ransacked by mice. And this just gets worse and worse. And so finally someone begins to assess Maybe it's the ark of God that's doing this. I mean, it ends up being seven months before they get rid of the ark. And so here, this, this region, it did not have these problems before. Subsequent to the ark's arrival, now it, it is absolutely covered and afflicted by these problems that are spreading. And so they prepare for themselves a simple solution and it's, uh, it, they say this in verse 7, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us for his hand is hard against us. In verse 8 it said, his hand was heavy and here it says his hand was hard. It came with strength, it came with weight, it came with severity. And they've put two and two together and they think, this must be the cause of it. This is the only thing that's changed. Now, I want to put away um, confusing notions that would come into our mind. There was not some form of radiation or, or, or nuclear activity going on in the ark that was causing tumors to everybody who would come in its vicinity. These, this does not have a naturalistic explanation the ark had been many places before had it not not many tumors and it it's not that somehow Eli was immune to radiation where uh, or the high priest was immune where others weren't it, it, this is and the scriptures make it clear the hand of God it's not the work of the ark it's not the effect of the ark it is the hand of God. I'm going to go further. That hand is not stretching out from the ark. Okay? Since that ark represented God's presence, 
And since they believed by having it, it indicated their superiority over him, God determined to show himself mighty in that place. I mean, we move on from the mice and malignancy to see uh, movement and misery. What do they decide to do? This is a problem. Uh, What's interesting is the way that it says, let's see how the end of verse 7 ends. The God of Israel must not remain uh, with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. Wait a second. They're acknowledging what? This God is a giving our God a hard time. He's overpowering, he's troubling him, he's afflicting him. The people you would imagine have been appealing to their God for deliverance, protection, whatever the case may be, as would have been the expectation. Not getting a fix. And Dagon's actually already in pieces. And so what do they do? Here's an idea I might think. Stop appealing to Dagon. Or stop appealing to that doggone God. Because he's not. He cannot do anything. Maybe, just maybe, you ought to pray to the God of Israel. And say, great and mighty God who has afflicted us with these things. But somehow, they don't do that, do they? They continue in what they're doing and they, they, they figure out what the solution would be. Instead of turning from what has no authority and what has no power, indeed what has no real existence, instead of turning from that to a true, living, proven, and powerful God, they decide, here's the solution. Let's get rid of this God. They, they now know it is mighty and it is powerful. <laughs> And their answer is not to submit to it and turn to it, but to get rid of it and get away from it. Not unexpected. That's a normal response of sinful men. Listen to what they, they so they get the fix. In verse 8, they sent, they gathered together the Lord of the Philistines and said, all the lords of the Philistines, what shall we do with the ark of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of God of Israel be brought to Gath. Okay. So another city says, bring it to us. Yeah, let them take it. So there, there seems to be this sense, it's just coincidence. It just probably coincided. There's no way uh, that ark, and maybe if that ark, it's possible that in those uh, uh, times, we can't know for sure, it might be much like India, where different villages will have different gods and even different cities in in multi-pagan societies will have specific idols. It's believed that Gath worshipped a goddess as opposed to this specific one. But don't hold me to that because a lot of this is historic speculation. But somehow they thought, put it in Gath. Now, whether they were confident that God there might be a little stronger or whether it's because Gath was known as such a powerful city. Now, Gath, when I say Gath, most of you probably aren't thinking, ah, Gath, I remember Gath. 
but some of you may be because that is the place of origin of Goliath. And if you're not familiar with Goliath, he's the giant. And not just he, but it seems there was a whole race of giants and Gath was their city of choice. Giant men. Not just like basketball players these days, exceeding that into the eight and nine foot range. Big, powerful, mighty men. And so they thought, let's, let's, let's put it there. These men are stalwart and strong. They can stand against it. And so they move the ark from one place to another. And as they move it to Gath, Gath being one of the five major cities of the, the Philistines in those days, they brought it around, and verse 9 says, after they brought it around to Gath, the hand of the Lord was against that city, causing very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. I want to add a little something here depending on your translation if you got the old king james here the old king james here says both small and great rather than young and old and actually those are the more primary senses of the word such that a lot of the ancient scholars are thinking not young and old but the big boys and the little boys you know, the rich and the poor, those of influence, those of little influence, the mighty giant soldiers, as, as, as well as the diminutive ones. You know, every, there was nobody who was spared. Here they thought, we can stand before this God. And they bring him to Gath. And the result of that is they were also afflicted. And so uh, in verse 10, it tells us what they did next. See, when you, when, you, when you come up with a solution that doesn't work, the best plan is to do that same thing that didn't work again. Right? Or wrong. It's wrong. But that's what men have the tendency to do. And so here's the solution. Let's get it out of Gath. Let's send it over to Ekron. And so they send it over to the next city. And what happens when it gets to the next city? It tells us there in, in verse 10, they sent the ark to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God got to Ekron, the people cried out. They have brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. And they sent and they gathered all the lords of the Philistines and they said, send the ark away. Let it return to its own people that it may not kill us and our people. Now this is why they called the people. Listen what had happened. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die with tum uh, were struck with tumors, and there was, it, and it says there, uh, it, the original actually says, and some of your translations will say, tumors in, in the secret places or in the hinder parts. So, so it, it, it was bad. That's all we need to, to understand. It, 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 was just, it was just a miserable affliction and, and very great against them. You almost get this sense of, he showed himself in, in strong 
in Ashdod. And they thought, Gath can handle him. Send it to Gath, and things escalated. <laughs> Better go to Ekron, they can do it. And it escalated even more. That e each time they thought they had, the, they had the way to stop the hand of God. What did they find? The hand of God cannot be stopped. Amen? And I'm so thankful for that because when God set his own heart and sets forth his hand to lay hold of me or you in our sin and in our wickedness and to draw us to himself and to bring us life in Christ, I'm so thankful that I can't fight that hand off and nobody else can fight it off. That God's hand is powerful to save. But in this passage, we learn not only is God's hand powerful to save, it's also powerful to condemn. It's also powerful to judge. And they learned that lesson here in just a moment. And, and I think of um, what, I, uh, what I would really say, uh, the third point under the hand hard and heavy is of men and mindlessness. Hey, at what point here should they not say, Forget our gods. <laughs> I mean, come on. It is very clear that even in their limited mindset, at least in comparison, we by grace know that the reason why their gods couldn't help is because it's just like talking to a brick wall. There's nothing there. But they should have at least realized well, by comparison, there's no point in us continuing to follow these helpless and pathetic gods. We need to start following the God of Israel. I mean, doesn't that seem like the sensible decision? I mean, I, in that kind of a society, in that sort of a superstitious environment, how in the world did they not say, from now on, we're, we're following this God? He's powerful and, and began to do whatever they, they were going to try to do to, to worship, to sacrifice, to pay homage, to make atonement. But we, in, we see no indication of a turning to or even a confused form of directing their own patterns of worship towards this God. Their only sense is get rid of it. I mean, really? God shows himself surely to exist more powerful than anything that you've ever seen, known, or experienced, and your solution is not to fall down before him and say, God, have mercy on me. Your, your solution is, get out of here. That's the mindless condition of men. And I think... Part of the reason we see that is that's not all that unique to them. Even as we come forward to the New Testament and the preaching of the gospel, we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the scriptures tell us this, since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. So how are people going to find God? It's never going to become from their own brilliance or mindset. It's never going to come from their own sense or sensitivities. It just doesn't happen. God, in his wisdom, determined that man will not find him through their wisdom. Then how will we find God? 
if it won't be through our own smarts, brains, and efforts. Well, the scripture tells us, it pleased God that through the folly or foolishness of what we preach to save those that believe. Here's how it comes, through the preaching of the gospel. By observing power, nobody gets it. By hearing of answered prayers, nobody gets it. By just recognizing something's not right, doesn't fix it. The only thing that reveals the truth of God to men is the preaching of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. But listen to what it tells us down there in verse 23, still in 1 Corinthians 1. But we preach Christ, crucified. But that wonderful message that saves those who believe doesn't save everybody who hears. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and what? Folly to the Gentiles. Now wait a second. In the language of those days, Jews was the people of Israel, and the Gentiles or ethnos was everybody else. So you're saying that the message of the gospel, Christ crucified, the reaction of everybody is either stumbling block or foolishness. And the answer is, actually that's what the verse said. I didn't say it. So the, the, here comes the gospel. He, here is the message. Here is salvation. Here is hope. Christ died. Christ rose again. And men say, I want nothing to do with it. Have you seen that? We, the years that we serve the Lord, the years that we know the Lord, and sometimes people end up seeing their, their own children at certain stages just say, I don't want anything to do with these things. I don't want any." And you think, well, what is going on? Why, why would they walk away from the only God, the only hope, the only salvation? I don't get it. Well, this message, and then it tells us, of course, in verse 24, thankfully, God does not leave all the Jews and all of the Gentiles in that state of stumbling over it and rejecting it, considering it foolish and rejecting it. But it tells us in verse 24, but those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. Ephesians 4 says it like this, uh, as it says to the, speaks to the believers in the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians 4, 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles, as the ethnos, as the nations do. You cannot live like them anymore. Well, how do they live? I mean, that's a reasonable question, isn't it? Uh, if I'm not supposed to walk like them, I kind of need to know how they walk or I won't be able to fix it. He goes on to tell us one of the key characteristics of the way that they walk. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. We got this. We know what's right. We know what's wrong. We know what's good. We know what's bad. We know what's truth. We know what's error. We know who's God and who's not God. We've got the answers. Futility. So what's the condition of mind? natural man's mind futility which is why we go back 
So why would those, what was wrong with the Philistines that they would see that power, unquestionable power? We see uh, later in chapter 6, they even knew the history of that power manifest and what God had done in Egypt. So they were without excuse. They were not simply looking at the heavens proclaiming his handiwork. They were looking at the heaviness of hand right on their own bodies. And they, and they still were stuck in this condition. The futility of their mind. Living in darkness. But there's a beauty. Those in darkness, when a light dawns, there is change. And through that gospel and through the power of God, even as God in the work of creation, it says in 2 Corinthians 4, said, let there be light. And there was light. Here I was, and you were at one point, sitting in darkness. Futility of our minds. You know what God in his mercy said concerning us? Let there be light. Let there be life through the gospel. And he granted that we come to know and believe. And we hear the gospel. And this guy here hears it. I don't want that. And this guy here says, I don't want that. We're like, what are you kidding? Why, you don't want that? That's life and hope and truth. How could you not want that? And what makes the difference between one and another? But by grace, we have been saved. Not by our wisdom. I can't stand there and say, I assessed the evidence in documents, in history, in power, and I figured out which was the true God and which was the best religion, and I chose rightly. They, on the other hand, not having my wisdom, did not choose rightly. Is that how it worked? No. I have to actually look around at times and say, hmm, fella actually has more worldly wisdom than me. And he hasn't figured it out. Actually, I never did figure it out. Simply heard it preached and somehow it was confirmed in my heart. This is truth. This is life. I believe. Have mercy on me, God. Forgive my sins. Strengthen me in you. Oh, the mindlessness of second, And so that wonderful thing. Um, but... The nature of it is, uh, that was 2 Corinthians 4, 4, where the God of this age keeps them from seeing the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Galatians even says it in this way in Galatians 4, 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, okay, you were enslaved by nature to those things that are not God's. Somehow, they thought, if we can just get rid of this God, Dagon will get his strength back. Really? Who would think? I mean, we look at that and think, they had serious problems. Not understanding, we all, apart from grace, had serious problems until the mercy of God broke into our hearts and lives. And we, I want to move on to the last thought. And that is the test of truth. Really in the test of truth, they're trying, to, they're trying to assess here, did all this happen by coincidence or condemnation? 
And so as we move on to chapter 6, what begins happening there is the Philistines have had all of these problems. Their own gathering together of their lords and leaders didn't fix it. At each stage, it just got worse and worse. So now they come up with what they think will be the solution. Let's gather our religious people. Let's gather our priests and let's gather our, our uh, diviners and let them give us what is the solution. Now, will these men have the answers? No, they won't have the answers. But, the, but one thing is this. If someone is supposed to be a spiritual leader, they'll give an answer. May not be the answer, you know. What do, I mean, in India, we're getting ready to drill a well. What do I need to do, they might ask the temple priest, in order for that to yield water? Well, it's going to take about six coconuts, and, it's gonna, and they're going to give you all these specifics because uh, when you get a specific answer, this guy knows what he's talking about, you know, and he'll tell you, he t you got to do it on this day at this time because at that point the stars will be such and so and see, what? But, but you're listening. Wow, I mean, that's confident, that's clear. They know what they're talking about. Sometimes that wins the day. Confidence is all it takes for people to say, yeah, we'll do that. So they get these guys in and these guys come up with a solution. All right, you got to give an offering. Golden tumors and golden mice. I'll just proffer this to you. That's not a traditional or typical Old Testament practice. Right? God did at no point request golden tumors and golden mice, and that's not going to fix the problem. The, these men even, it seems, are not themselves entirely convinced that this is God's doing. They don't know the solution. They don't know what's going on. But, but here's one of the things that potentially happens. One of the things that used to happen in the uh, days of old and we have some traditions that speak of this our non-existent Daniel chapter 14 we don't have that because it's not real it's apocryphal tells a supposed traditional story about the the god Bel of Babylon and Daniel the advisor to the king you know and what would generally happen is they would give all kinds of gifts to this God yeah gold mice and gold tumors and then just send it away on the road now if it didn't end up going back to Israel I would proffer this possibility when they found the ark again the box next to it with gold tumors and golden mice the diviners would say God accepted the offering as their pockets are stuffed Wait, because what they would do, it, it, they would put all this food and all this stuff and all these offerings in the temple and they'd close it for the night in Babylon and supposedly they'd go in the next morning, all the food was gone. And, and, and all of the gold and silver and trinkets and offerings, it's all gone. And so supposedly the king, according to that apocryphal writing, would say, Daniel, how can you say this God is no God? He's eating. And apparently spending because the gold and silver is gone. All these things are gone. How can you say that he's not real? And so Daniel said, well, let's uh, 
everybody out of the temple except for me. And he spread ashes all over the floor of the temple and then left. When they came, opened the door the next morning, supposedly the king says, see once again, Daniel, it's all gone. And then Daniel points to the ground and there's all kinds of footprints of men and women and children. And he has the guards search the temple and they find that there's a secret passage that the priests and all of their family are coming in, eating the food and stealing the stuff. Because uh, that's the way. The gods have accepted your offering that you brought yesterday. The, the gold necklace you brought, he received it. That's why you don't see it anymore. Well, no, you took it and melted it down and sold it. That, that's why it was so profitable to be in the practice of being a diviner in those days. And so here these diviners, they're coming up with solutions, often ones that will line their pockets often ones that bear some sort of precision and, and, they're, and they're setting out their idea. And their idea comes, you, you need to put it on a new cart. Why a new cart? It doesn't tell you why. They're just being specific. We need a new cart and we need two cows and then we need to send it. And, and they actually try to test the Lord because how does it say that they do? They, they say a new cart and choose two milking cows. Now, if you're going to generally yoke together, that's fixed together, and have pull a cart, that's not the general task of milking cows. I won't even give you a test, but you could probably figure out the general workload of a milking cow, right? And they, they're not out in the field, they're not plowing, and you had to take some that are milking cows, and not that before they had born were at one point doing this but those that have never been yoked before never pulled a cart before all right so you do that then what is the likelihood that these cows are going to work together and go where they're supposed to go it gets slim but not only are they generally milking cows but they're milking cows that presently have calves and take their calves and take them home with the expectation that somehow the, the desperate desire of these cows is not going to be to take this where it needs to go, but to find their calves. And so they're going to be wandering here and there in the fields looking for their calves. And so put them at the road. To our best understanding, it was a location where a road would kind of come to a, to a pitch and it could go one way that would head back towards Ekron and another way that would head towards Israel. And so you, you put them there, let them go, see what happens. Even at, what's interesting, even as, he, as they tell them uh, to do these things and, and to put these images, it does say in verse 5, and give glory to the God of Israel. Give these things, give glory to the God of Israel. You're pretty good. You are powerful. You are amazing. Goodbye. What? And perhaps he will lighten his hand from you and your God's and your land. See, this God has power over you, your gods, and your land. And yet, who are these diviners going to continue to serve for the rest of their miserable days? Yeah. It goes on. So they get the new cart, they get them together, and they let it go its way. And uh, they say this at the end of verse 9, looking for whether this is coincidence or whether this is condemnation. 
They're looking for confirmation. So at the end of verse 9, they say, if it goes up by, on the way to its own land, that is Beth Shemesh, the house of the sun, then it is he, their God, who has done us great harm. But if not, then we shall know it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. Or some translations, by chance. More literally, by happenstance. But we don't use that word very often. And it, so they're not even sure what's going to happen. You, you, you get the sense that they're hoping it doesn't go back because there's gold to be had. And they, they let it go. And it tells us in verse 12. So they did all those things and the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh. Wait a second. These are untrained, unexperienced milking cows that are missing their calves. How are they going together straight on the road? Well, not only straight on the road to emphasize the sense of it. It says along one highway. They weren't taking side roads. They weren't taking different directions. Lowing as they went, they turned neither to the right nor to the left. So I mean, they just, as if they were supremely trained, they went directly back to Israel. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Now it says, lowing as they went, which is a peculiar phrase. I think we generally might use the phrase mooing. You know, making their low sound. Uh, now, most scholars have indicated that uh, that was um, them crying out, missing their calves. But I have to admit, I am not a cow psychologist. I have no idea why those cows were lowing. And I don't know how those other fellows figured it out. Uh, you know, I, I might think they were singing travel songs or they, were, or they were praising God. I mean, we could come up with any multitude of solutions, but somehow uh, it's mentioned there, so maybe the expectation is that they would be dour or silent um, in, in the loneliness of missing it. But here they go, or whether it's an announcement, here we go, we're coming, we're coming, get out of our way, we're coming. I don't know what's going on, but it's, it's something that clearly if they're passing by and there's, and there's people on the road or people looking in the field, what is that that we're hearing? I'm tempted to approximate their sound. I'm not going to do it though. And so as, as this unfolds and then it, and it goes right back, crosses the border and right back to the town of, land of Israel. And so what does that prove? No coincidence. It was condemnation. It was the hand of God. So at this point, at the very least, I would have hoped and that these diviners and all of those people would have been, it was this God. This God who proved himself powerful over us, over our gods, and over our lands. Let us all turn to this God. But did they? They did not. And even men, even this world, do they? They do not. Far too few. We need to pray and plead for mercy that God would open hearts and God would open eyes. So in this passage, we see a few simple things, and I'll just draw your attention back to it in closing. We see the ark in Ashdod. We see that they brought it into the house of their God. Once it was in the house of their God, their God paid homage 
We see the homage of their God paid to the true God, and then we see the head and the hands of their God dismembered and separated. In their God being shown to be having no authority and no power, then suddenly the hand of God was hard and heavy. And we see God's hand hard and heavy when we see the mice and the malignancy, those tumors spreading. We see the movement of the ark from place to place and the increase of misery. We see men in all of this and still their minds are darkened and they're unable in their sin to turn from that which is proven powerless to that which is proven true. And then there was that final test of truth. Put it on a cart, give it to the cows, and let's see if there's confirmation. And what was the result? Confirmation. God is true. Even when men think, he won't do that. Uh, uh, some even like to say, you know what? Everything that those cows did was contrary to their nature. Everything within their nature as milking cows, missing calves, would have been to go into the fields, away from the roads, try to get away from one another. But when God began to work upon them, and this is what God wonderfully does, he takes us, and by his grace changes us so that we are no longer following our old nature. That nature that took us to rebel against God, to refuse the gospel, to walk in the way of the world, God by his mercy subdues us and saves us, sets us free from our natural inclination the darkness the mindlessness so that now when we see God's acts and God's hands and God's power what do we do we don't say get away we say great is the Lord we fall on our knees and praise him because he is great and worthy let's pray Lord as we um, look to you we are so thankful for your word. God, you have proven yourself true time and time again throughout history in your word. And beyond that, God, you have proven yourself to those of us who have faith in Christ. You've proven yourself powerful in us. Lord, we thank you that that same power in your kindness and mercy has not been displayed upon us who know you in judgment but that you have subdued our sinful natures. You have moved us in a way that was contrary to what we were. And you have made us new in Christ Jesus. God, we praise you, the God of all authority, the God of all power, the God of all wisdom, the God of our hope and salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.